said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. We're going to study a passage here this morning that was once well known and well studied. Revelation chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 2. Now, the reason that we are starting in verse 2 is because verse 1 is not a part of chapter 8. Verse 1 is a part of the previous chapter, or the previous prophecy, I should say, the prophecy of the seven seals. Chapter 8 begins a new prophecy, and this prophecy is the prophecy of the seven trumpets. And so here we start in Revelation chapter 8 and beginning in verse 2, it says, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar. He had a golden censer. And there was given to him much incense, or lots of incense, so that he could offer it with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar that was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense came up with the prayers of the saints and ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it into the earth. And there were voices, thunderings, lightnings, and a great earthquake. And so we are introduced to a very dramatic uh, prophecy right here, focused on, I want you to notice, the temple in heaven. Notice right here that this scene is taking place in the holy place in the temple in heaven. You have the golden altar there. You have the angel with the censer. You have the incense being offered with the prayers of the saints. You have intercession taking place. And so we have the introduction to the prophecy of the seven trumpets. Okay, so one of the things that we've noted as we have been working our way through the seminar is when it comes to understanding a prophecy, some of the most significant things, clues that can help us in understanding a prophecy is understanding time and place. And on this one, we're going to also look at the event. So we're going to look at the time, the period in which the prophecy begins, the place, the geographical location in which the prophecy takes place, and the event, what is it that is actually happening here inside of God's sanctuary? God's sanctuary, of course, in heaven. If we go to Hebrews chapter 8, just very quickly to review Hebrews chapter 8, the Bible says, Now of the things which you have spoken, this is the summary. This is verse 1. We have a high priest who is sitting on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord built and not man. Now, of course, the one that you're looking at here, this is the one that Moses built, and it was the simplest and smallest of them all. But it has the same basic structure, the same basic components of the one that Solomon built, of the one that Zerubbabel built, of the one that Herod built, and of course of the great original in heaven. And when of course you study the great original in heaven, you find that this is a sanctuary beyond anything that we can even begin to imagine. The Bible says when the judgment takes place, that thousand thousands ministered unto him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened and this takes place in the heavenly sanctuary. Who knows? This might be a building that spans galaxies. One day we will find out. Nevertheless, we know that the one here that is on earth, which is a faint reflection, the Bible describes it as a shadow of the one that is in heaven, teaches us the lessons that we need to learn about what is taking place in heaven right now. 
So there's a number of things that we're going to observe here as we begin working our way through this particular prophecy. And the first thing we notice is that the Bible here begins by talking about the altar of incense. And it was here on the altar of incense that the priest would offer incense and that incense would burn with a white smoke and create a special scent because it was there in the holy place that the sins of Israel were brought in before God, symbolized by the blood from the sacrifices of the lamb, and it would be sprinkled on this veil here, on this curtain on the floor, and on the four horns of the altar. And as those sins in that blood came into the holy place, obviously it would stink, wouldn't it? That would be a really foul smell. And you think, why build such a beautiful, magnificent building and then pollute it like that? Well, God is giving us a very clear lesson here, isn't he? Sin stinks. It reeks in the nostrils of God. It is a terrible thing and it is the stench of death because it would cause the death of Jesus Christ. We need to stop and think about that because so often we, we just sin without even thinking about it. We don't even blink at the thought of sin today. But sin really stinks. But you had this altar of incense that was right there in the holy place and incense was burning on that and the smoke of that incense and the smell of that incense would neutralize the stench of that sin and it would burn with a white smoke. And what is white a symbol of in the Bible? Whose purity? Jesus' purity. The purity of right, the righteousness of Jesus covering the stench of our sins. Isn't that beautiful symbolism right there? And that's why the priest would come in here and as he offered incense there and he carried a censer here in which he burned incense, that incense symbolized the intercession that was taking place where our sins were being forgiven by Jesus Christ. Wonderful lessons that you find right there in the sanctuary. We could go on all day talking about it, but we need to look at our passage here in Revelation chapter 8. And in verse 3, the Bible says, Another angel came and stood at the altar. He has a golden censer. In it he is offering incense with the prayers of the saints. In other words, he's interceding. We need to identify who is this angel that we have right here. And the first thing that we're going to notice in relationship to this angel is where the angel is standing. Where does the Bible say that the angel is standing? At the altar of incense, that's right. Okay, so we're going to put that up there immediately. I'm going to come back to that and talk about it in just a moment, a little bit more, but we find that the angel is standing at the altar of incense. The second thing that we need to do to identify who this angel is, is to find out what is the angel doing? He's offering incense with what? With the prayers of the saints. That's a work of intercession, isn't it? Okay? So the second thing we find is that this angel is interceding for the saints. And the third thing that we find that this, this angel does, right down in the end of the prophecy, we find a change takes place as we come to the end. In verse 5, the angel takes the censer and fills it with what? Fire. Not with incense this time. No, rather than filling it with incense, he fills it with fire and he throws it down into the earth. And so if the incense comes out and the fire replaces it, then you have a close of probation or an ending of intercession that is taking place, don't you? Okay, so the third thing we find out about this angel is that this angel has the power to close 
probation. So let me ask you this question. Who then is the angel? Okay, I can hear you all saying Jesus Christ. And the reason that we would say Jesus Christ, we have a number of different uh, uh, points that we need to, to look at here in relationship to this, of course, is that Jesus is the only one who has the power to close anybody's probation, to cease intercession. He is the only one. We are, how many mediators do we have between God and man? Just one. That's Jesus Christ. But we have a problem. You see, the Bible does not say this is Jesus. The Bible says that it is an angel. So is it appropriate to call Jesus an angel? I want you to think about this for a moment. Because a lot of people get very, very challenged by this. And the moment that I present a message like this, they say, oh, you're saying that Jesus is a created being, that he is a spirit being. No, absolutely not. The word angel in the Bible comes from the Greek word angelos, and it simply means messenger. And so if uh, you were using the Greek language here today, and I stood up here in front, it would be appropriate to call me an angel. Because I'm a messenger, I have, I'm coming here with a message, an angelos, a messenger. That's what I am today. And so the Bible refers to Paul as an angel. The Bible refers to King David as an angel, etc. There are a number of human beings in the Bible who are referred to as an angel or an angelos, not because they are a spirit being, but because they are a messenger. Let me ask you this question. Did Jesus, was Jesus a messenger? Yes. Was there ever a greater messenger than Jesus Christ? No, he's the greatest messenger who has ever lived. Does the Bible in other places refer to Jesus as being an angel or a messenger? I'd like you to go back in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to establish this very quickly so that we don't have any confusion here. Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. And there are multitudes of verses like this in the Bible. We often just read over them without actually looking at them. Genesis chapter 48 and verse 16, this is Jacob speaking. I want you to notice what Jacob says. In verse 16, the Bible says, The angel which redeemed me from all evil. Okay, so what did this angel do on behalf of Jacob? Redeemed him. How many redeemers do we have? Just one. What is his name? That is Jesus Christ. There is only one Redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. And here the Bible refers to Jesus Christ as an angel. You can look at that famous passage over in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, let's look at this one very quickly in Exodus chapter 3. There's a great passage here. It talks about Moses' experience at the burning bush. And here we find that God proclaims himself as the great I am, the self-existent one. And the Bible says in verse 2 that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush. You all see that? It's very clear. The Bible says the angel of the Lord appeared in the burning bush. And Moses goes over to have a look. And in verse 4, and when God saw or the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the middle of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And then you go down to verse 14. God proclaims his name. He says, I am. I am, that's my name, I am, the self-existent one, the ruler and creator of the universe, and here we find him described as being an angel. And so very clearly what we have taking place in Revelation chapter 8 is a depiction of Jesus Christ. So that we know that we're dealing with Jesus, 
And another, uh, before we move on, there's one more point that we need to draw out with this, and that is the principle of how Bible prophecy is written. Bible prophecy is written on the principle of repeat and enlarge. So God will give a prophecy, then he'll repeat that prophecy and enlarge on it. Then he'll give that prophecy again and enlarge on it some more. And then he'll give it again and enlarge on it. And so when you go to the book of Daniel, you have four prophecies in the book of Daniel. These are the four prophecies of the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, 10 through 12. And each one of them has the same sequence. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then Babylon falls, so it goes Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And I want you to notice that what is taking place as each prophecy repeats itself, it begins in the time of the prophet and goes through to the end of time. This is God's method in giving prophecy. The book of Revelation is written exactly the same way. You have the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, repeat and enlarge. This one, Jesus at the candlesticks. This one, Jesus at the table of showbread. This one at the introduction, Jesus is at the altar of incense. Each one of these prophecies introduces itself with Jesus Christ because this is the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. And each one of these prophecies, as you work your way down through the sequence, is going to give you a different picture of how Jesus is relating to events that are taking place here on this earth. And so, for instance, in the prophecy of the seven churches, you have a picture of how Jesus is relating to his church from the time of of John all the way down to the end of time. And then you have the seals, you have the church in relationship with the state. And then you come to the trumpets and you have a very unique prophecy because this prophecy, unlike any other prophecy in the book of Daniel or Revelation, virtually makes no mention of God's church or God's people anywhere in it, except for one small passing reference. And we're going to look at that. And so you would think to yourself, why would God give a prophecy in which he barely mentions his church or his people? Why would God give a prophecy outlining political events, secular events going down through history? Well, we're going to look at, to the answer, look at the answer of that to that as we work our way through. However, the first thing we notice here is that Jesus begins all of these prophecies, and in each one of these introductions, whereabouts is Jesus? Seven candlesticks, where's that? That's the holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. Table of showbread, where's that? Holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. Altar of incense, where's that? Holy place. And what is further interesting, as you work your way down through, when you come down to this period right here, guess what you have taking place? The judgment. Over here, uh, Laodicea, a people judged. Over here, the time of the judgment, the time of the dead that they should be judged, etc. And so you begin the prophecy with Jesus in the holy place, but then as you move your way through the prophecy, you have these dramatic statements. You know, the temple of God was open in heaven, and I saw in his temple the ark of his testament. Well, that's always going to be coming in down here at the end because now it's moving to most holy place terminology. It's moving from one phase of Christ's ministry to another. It is telling us that the judgment is beginning. And so we get a clue there immediately as to where this prophecy fits in. We know that this prophecy takes place before the judgment begins because of the sanctuary terminology that is used is focused on the holy place and not the most holy place. The second clue we get as to when this prophecy is taking place is that it begins 
with the time of the prophet and extends through to the end of time. And that's going to put us in the Roman era. But there are some more clues that we can look at as we work our way through this uh, particular prophecy. Okay, let's continue on. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 8 and let's find out what other clues there are that we can find. In Revelation chapter 8 and verse 5, the Bible says the angel took the censer and filled it with fire off the altar and threw it into the earth and there were voices and thunderings and lightning and an earthquake. I want you to notice what is happening here. This censer is supposed to be filled with incense because that is how the mediation takes place. The incense symbolizes mediation. It is supposed to be filled with incense, but it's not in this case. It's filled with fire, and then it is thrown into the earth, symbolizing that intercession has come to an end. However, and there are many people here who who assume at this particular point, well, that must be the close of probation that takes place at the end of all time. No, the Bible does not say that incense ceases to burn on the altar of incense. It is just a local close of probation that we have that is taking place here. We're going to look at what that is in just a moment. In fact, as we work our way down through this, well, actually, I'll just share this statement with you because um, some people, uh, they wonder about, well, you know, how does, where does all this fit in? There is scarcely so uniform agreement among interpreters concerning any other part of the apocalypse as respecting the application of the fifth and sixth trumpets or the first and second woes. It is so obvious that it can scarcely be misunderstood. And uh, that used to be the case. And now I'm presenting, you know, when I present the prophetic rise of Islam from the Bible, so many people come to me like, wow, I've never heard this before. Where did, where did this all come from? Well, it's been around for a, uh, a very long time indeed. Now, let's... Go here to Revelation chapter 8. The Bible says that the censer is cast. Where does the Bible say the censer is cast? Where is it thrown into? The earth. So we need to go back to the time of the prophet, the time of John. And some people say, well, that must mean then the whole world. But I want you to think about this for a moment. There are different kinds of closes of probation. Closes of probation, if you're not familiar with the language, simply means the opportunity for salvation comes to an end. In the Bible, you have instances where probation closes, the opportunity for salvation ends on an individual. Can somebody give me an example? Yes, at the time of death, your your opportunity for salvation is over then. All right, someone give me an individual whose probation closed while they were still alive. Saul, when he went to the witch of Endor. Very good. Another example would be Belshazzar with his feast. And the hand comes and writes on the wall and basically writes, um, you're judged, your weight in the balances, you're judged, you're found wanting, your kingdom is given uh, to the Medes and the Persians, your probation is closed, your opportunity is over, it's finished. Some people say, oh, you can come to Jesus whenever you want. No, you can only come to Jesus while he is still calling. And of course, why would you hold back from coming to Jesus at any time? But anyway, what about a close of probation on a city? Who can give me an example? Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, two good examples right there. Excellent. What about a close of probation on a nation? Okay, yes, as being uh, God's church. They ceased to be God's church and the Christian church became God's church. Yes? And we could probably look at... What about a close of probation on the whole world? Has that ever happened before? The flood. Absolutely. 
Okay, so what we've got to look at is what is it that is taking place here? We have some clues. The censer is thrown down, not the altar of incense. Probation has not closed on the whole world. This is a local close of probation, but it is closing on somewhere that is described as the earth in the time of the Apostle John. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Was there a place that was described as the whole world, which was not the whole world, in the time of John? Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that how much of the world should be taxed? How much of it? All the world. Did they tax Australia? No, they did not tax Australia. Why not? not? They did not rule Australia. But in the time of John, the whole world, was the Roman Empire was described and spoken of as being the whole world. And so we have a place at this particular time that is described as being the whole world. It's in the time of the prophet who's giving the prophecy. And it's a local area of our earth rather than being the whole world. You see, you can't have a close of probation on the whole world while Jesus is ministering in the holy place. The final close of probation on the whole world at the end of time will take place while Jesus is ministering in the most holy place, not the holy place. And so here we have a close of probation on the Roman Empire. And so I need to skip over some details at this particular point. Because if I don't skip some details, we are going to be here all afternoon and I need to get through this in the next 15 minutes. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We are going to skip the first four trumpets. But we know what event is taking place. The event is close of probation on the Roman Empire. We know our location, where it is happening. We know that uh, we know time period. We know it's before 1844. It's before the judgment. It's taking place in the holy place. And by a process of looking at the principle of repeat and enlarge, we are going back to the time of John. And so you go back to the time of John and you ask yourself the question, was probation starting to close on imperial Rome? And you can trace it through from there. And while John was still alive, you have Nero who comes to power, institutes persecution against Christianity, and the Roman Empire goes on a steady decline from that point forward. As it declines, Rome splits into initially three different parts. You had Western Rome, you had Illyricum, you had Eastern Rome, um, and so forth. It splits into three parts. And Western Rome and Illyricum, they are the first to go and to collapse. But you have Eastern Rome. And Eastern Rome is the part of the Roman Empire that we often don't refer to as the Roman Empire. We usually refer to it as the Byzantine Empire. The reason being is that Constantine moved the capital of the Roman Empire from the city of Rome to the city of Byzantium, otherwise known as Istanbul or Constantinople. He called it after himself. And so after Western Rome falls, Eastern Rome is all that is left. And the first four trumpets really give you the fall of Western Rome. What we need to do now is look at the Eastern, Eastern Rome because Eastern Rome is where Islam comes into focus. And so we're going to skip those first four. and We're going to uh, assume them as, uh, as having taken place already. And so 
here's an assumption. We're going to, and you can look at, come and ask me about the history later, that by the year 541, Western Rome had ceased to exist. It had fallen and collapsed and disintegrated initially into 10 separate nations. And by a process of elimination, we now know that when we come down to Revelation chapter 9, which is the fifth and the sixth trumpets, we are dealing with locations that are going to take place in Eastern or events that are going to take place in Eastern Rome. So let's turn over there very quickly and let's see what happens. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1. The Bible says, The fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there came and there rose out, uh, there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke out of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts on the earth, and under them was given power, as the scorpions have power. A very specific command follows that was given to them at this particular point. But let's summarize what we have so far. The Bible says it begins with a star, a falling star. What does a star symbolize in Bible prophecy? Okay, a star symbolizes a leader, or a, in this case, a king. I'm going to show you the passages for this in just a moment because I've got a slide on it. Okay, so in the book of Revelation, you'll find that a star is symbolic of a leader. In a prophecy such as the seven churches, that will be the leaders of the churches. But in a prophecy that is dealing with political events, it's going to be a political leader. So here we are introduced to a political leader. Okay, so this star falls, and when he falls, he opens what? The bottomless pit. Now, the bottomless pit is mentioned in a number of different places in the Bible. In each different place, the bottomless pit is mentioned. It refers to something different. The most famous mention of the bottomless pit is that which is found in Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, what is the Bible describing as the bottomless pit? The earth. And at this particular point, what condition is the earth in? It's a desolate wasteland, wouldn't you say? So it describes the condition of the earth as being a desolate wasteland. And consistently throughout the Bible, wherever you find the bottomless pit being used, it will always refer to something different, but it will always refer to an area that is a desolate wasteland. Okay, so what comes out of the pit? And what does that smoke do to the earth? It covers the earth, yes. And it darkens the earth. Isn't that so? We live in Australia. We live in a place where we often have bushfires. And we need to pray that we don't have a bad bushfire season because it's looking pretty nasty out there. But when the smoke comes, it darkens the earth, doesn't it? Okay, so what is darkness a symbol of in the Bible? What is light a symbol of? Truth. Knowledge of God. So darkness is going to be the opposite of that. We all good? Okay, so we've got smoke coming out. We've got, we would say... Error. There you go. Okay, then what comes out of the smoke? Locusts, otherwise known as grasshoppers. Okay, now these grasshoppers are unique in where their power is, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we go any further, what does an animal symbolize in Bible prophecy? A nation or a kingdom. And so we have some great empires in the Bible who are described as being great empires or great nations. But here you have something different. You have a very small creature, don't you? And you have lots of them, don't you? 
And so we would say, rather than there being one great empire, there would be many, many small political entities, tribes with chieftains. So let's, let's, let's put that up there for a moment. So we call them mini kingdoms or tribes. Okay, now they have, the Bible says, power like scorpions have power. Well, where is the power of a scorpion? We were up at uh, Anthony's place the other day and he turned over a rock. My goodness, there was the biggest scorpion under that rock I've ever seen in Australia. He was scary. Okay, so what, where is their power? Ah, what do they do with their tail? They sting. Okay, so what do you have to ask ourselves the question here? What does the tail symbolize? And we're going to go back to the book of Isaiah. What is the tail a symbol of in the Bible? Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to go to verse 15. Isaiah 9 and verse 15, the Bible says, The ancient and honorable hears the head, and the prophet that does what? Teaches lies, hears the what? The tale. Okay. So then, if the prophet that teaches lies is the tail, and these grasshoppers, their power is in their tail, where is, in their, where is their power? In their prophet that teaches lies. Now, I need to say this at this particular point. You need to be very, very careful about how you would uh, present this to your Islamic friends. But we're going to find some interesting things out here. And if I was presenting this particular subject to a group of Islamic people, I would present it very diplomatically. But we need to note what the Bible says. So their power is in their prophet that teaches lies. Now, the Bible goes on. Let's go back over to uh, Revelation. And let's find out in Revelation chapter 9 what else happens. There is a very specific command that is given. In verse 4, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. Okay, so they're given a command here to go out and they're going to do a lot of damage. But there is one group of people that they are not allowed to damage. Who is that? Those who have the seal of God. Genuine Christian people. We could even go so far as saying, because we understand that from Revelation chapter 7, the seal of the living God is the Sabbath. And I'll show you some interesting history in relationship to this as we go through here. But we'll just put genuine uh, Christianity there for a moment. Uh, if we continue on from there, uh, in verse 5, it talks about, to them was given, it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented. So notice what it is here. In verse 4, it was commanded they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing or any tree, but only those men which don't have the seal of God. So they can't hurt those who have the seal of God. So they are going to hurt those who don't have the seal of God. But they're not going to kill them, but torment them for how long? And a day in Bible prophecy symbolizes a what? A year. So that gives you a time period of five months or 100 and 50 years using the biblical month of 30 days to a month. Okay, so we've got a number of identifying characteristics that we've been able to list up here on the screen in relationship to the fifth trumpet. If we summarize it all together, 
It is, uh, we'll, we'll summarise all together in just a moment, but you were asking me about, um, or we were talking about a star symbolising a uh, leader. So let's put some passages up here. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, you find that a star symbolises an angel, which symbolises a leader. So if you've got A equals B equals C, therefore A equals C. That would be logical, wouldn't it? All right, so here we have a star equals a king. Uh, It's Numbers 24, verse 17. In 8, verse 10, you've got a star symbolizes a king. Uh, The same thing here, star symbolizes leaders. Uh, Revelation 9, verse 1, a star symbolizes a king. And over here, in Revelation 9, verse 11, you have the angel that symbolizes the king. And we can look at that very quickly um, just to establish what we're talking about. In verse 11, the Bible says they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. So the king is the angel. Going back to where we were, after 451 AD in Eastern Rome, so this is now pulling all of our clues together. So we know that it's after AD 451 because it's the first four trumpets have already dealt with the fall of Western Rome. So Western Rome has fallen, so we know it's after this time period here. We know, therefore, by a process of elimination, we are in eastern Rome. A king unlocks a desolate wasteland from which emerge united but individual tribes, locusts, who spread error, darkness on the earth. Their power and unity is in their prophet that teaches lies. And after 150 years of war, during which sealed Christians are generally protected, they are unable to destroy eastern Rome. The Bible says that they can torment but not destroy So we need to cover a little bit of history as to what took place during this time period right here. If you come down to not long after the date that we put right there on the screen, here's what you find happening. Around 607, you have the rise of the prophet Muhammad as a significant individual religiously amongst the Arabs in the Arabian desert and bringing a new religion. The first military successes of... The Muslims, this new religion from the Arabian desert, come in around 629 AD, so some years later. And this is after Muhammad has died. And so this is now Muhammad's followers. However, at the same time that all of this is taking place, you have some battles that are taking place that are completely unrelated to Islam. You have the Persians, Crossroads II, the Persian king, Crossroads II, he goes on the warpath. And he attacks the Roman Empire. And he attacks it so well that he is able to reduce eastern Rome to the walls of the city of Constantinople. But Constantinople was a truly impregnable fortress. This was a city that you need to understood for a period, stood for a period of 1,100 straight years without ever being conquered. It was a powerful fortress. And so he's got, Crossroads II has the Roman emperor, Heraclius, locked up inside the city of Constantinople. And he recognizes he can lay siege to the city as long as he wants. He's never going to actually be able to conquer that city. And so he's like, you know, let's strike an agreement. Uh, You pay me X amount of money and I will let you continue to rule. And Heraclius says, well, I've got no money here inside the city. You need to let me out. And so Crossroads II says, fine, go. Go collect your money and come and pay it to me. So Heraclius gets out and he goes and rather than collecting money, he collects an army. 
Crossroads II realizes what's happening. They meet at what was called the Battle of Nineveh. And at the Battle of Nineveh, Heraclius wins a Pyrrhic victory. A Pyrrhic victory is a victory where both sides exhaust themselves. Heraclius did win, but it completely destroyed the military power of Eastern Rome in the process. And what that then enabled to happen is a new power to come on the scene, and that was the Arabs from the desert. Now, the Arabs who were living in the desert, they were not united under one political leader. They were tribal. So you had lots of different tribes with all of these different tribal leaders who had never, ever been a united force before. They'd never been a threat before. They just lived out in the desert, and they did their thing, and nobody really worried about them. But now, for the first time in their history, they were united, not politically, but religiously. And now they were a force to be reckoned with. As they came together, they formed um, the greatest cavalry armies that the world has ever seen. And in a very short space of time, they were able to conquer everything that Crossroads II had conquered. In other words, they were able to establish an empire that reduced Eastern Rome once again to the walls of Constantinople. Now, over the years, it ebbed and it flowed, and sometimes Eastern Rome would be a big power, and sometimes uh, the Saracens would be a big power, uh, the Arabs, and it went backwards and forwards, and there were many vicious battles that were fought in this whole process. But this was what was taking place. Now, the Bible gave a number of specific things here, and the first was a very specific command. And you would have read it there. We read it a moment ago. In chapter 9 and verse 5, it was commanded them that they should not kill. Sorry, verse 4, it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. And if you read this here, this is from Abu Bakr, who um, took over from Muhammad um, in 629 AD. And he gave exactly this command, almost word for word, from the Bible. When you fight the battles of the Lord, destroy no palm trees, nor burn any fields of corn. Cut down no fruit trees, nor do any mischief to cattle, only such as you kill to eat. As you go, you will find some religious persons, let them alone. He gives a detailed description of them there. And you will find another sort of people that belong to the synagogue of Satan, who have shaven crowns. Be sure you cleave their skulls and give them no quarter till they either turn Mohammedans or pay tribute. It's almost as if Abu Bakr copied it straight out of Revelation chapter 9. A specific command, and now it is repeated nearly more than 500 years later in fulfillment of what the Bible said. And here's the history of what took place. And very few people are actually familiar with the history of how Islam related to Christianity. Islam arose in a period where the world had become incredibly darkened by the idolatry of Catholicism. Catholicism had come along and it had adopted every single pagan god that there was in the world and given it a Christian name. Muhammad looked out at what was taking place and Muhammad saw the total corruption of Christianity and said, okay, I need to do something about this. And so he starts a new religion that is incredibly opposed to idolatry. He says, we need to get back to just serving one God. And that was a good thing, except that he took a little bit too far. 
But this was the environment in which Islam came to power. And this was one of the reasons why Islam grew so rapidly. People were looking for something that was more pure than the corruptions of Rome. And they recognized in Islam and in its opposition to all of these multitudinous gods that were being worshipped under the names of saints, that this was a more pure religion. And Islam grew incredibly rapidly because of the corruption of Christianity. But there was a portion of Christianity that was not adversely affected by Islam. You see, there was a church in the east. It began with its headquarters in Antioch. Places like college cities like Edessa. It was a church that believed in the Bible alone. It was a church that was bitterly opposed to Rome. It was a church that believed in salvation by grace alone. It was a church that believed that Jesus was coming back soon. It was a church that kept the seventh day Sabbath. Does anybody find anything familiar with that? It was a church that extended all the way from the east all the way through India and across into China. And they came under the protection of Islam. So much so that the headquarters of the Church of the East for many, many years was Baghdad. And at one particular time, the leader of the Church of the East right there in Baghdad was a Chinese man. There's some fascinating history there that we so rarely investigate, but it's all there. It's interesting that when the great Protestant Reformation came along in the 16th century, that many of the reformers made alliances with the Ottoman Empire, which was Islamic. The reason that they made alliances with the Ottoman Empire was because they said that the Muslims were closer to Christianity than Roman Catholics were because of their objection to all of the images and idolatry that was taking place in the Catholic churches. So some of the really famous ones, like William of Orange, Elizabeth I, made alliances across there with Islam. They said, look, this is... This is This is not right, but it's better than Catholicism. And it was because of those alliances that every time Charles V pulled out his sword to go after the Protestants, the Muslims would land on his back doorstep. He'd have to turn around and fight them off. And Protestantism would not have survived without the intervention of Islam. Once again, history we don't hear so often these days. Okay, so we've got to find out about this time period of warfare that is taking place here. Conflict. Let's. Uh, the Bible gave a very specific time period, and if we go to verse ten, it repeats that time period. In verse ten, it says they had tails like scorpions. Well, we already read that. There were stings in their tails. We read about that. Their power was to hurt men for five months. We need to find out when does this five month period begin. If we can find a beginning for it, then we can find an ending for it. And this one is quite dramatic in how it is fulfilled. The next, ver- the next word is the word and. You all see that? That's a connecting word. Their power was to hurt men for five months and they have a king over them. You all follow so far? And they have a king over them. We noted that when the Arabians first came out and conquered most of eastern Rome, they did not have a king over them. They were united in their religion but not politically. They were tribal and they followed their tribal chieftains. But now the Bible says, no, 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 no. They are going to, there's going to come a time when they have a king over them. And so now we simply need to do this. Okay, when were the Arabs first united? When was Islam first ever united under a king? 
And the answer to that question is very, very simple. They were first united under a man by the name of Ottman. And uh, he was Turkish. He founded what was called the Ottoman Empire. So now I've established the first person who has a king, who, who creates a king over them. The next thing that we need to do is we need to establish, okay, now they have a king over them. The Bible says their power is to hurt men five months. When did they then first invade under Ottman? When did Ottman first invade Eastern Rome? And he crossed the borders into Eastern Rome on the 27th of here we have our five months. He crosses the border on the 27th of July, 1299. Now, the great thing about this part of history is that it is so recent that we have exact dates. Some of the events of the past we don't have exact dates for. Some we do. Some we only have a year for. But this one, we're given an exact date. So then we have a period of one hundred and. 50 years, in which there will be constant warfare, but Eastern Rome won't be able to be destroyed. That takes you to the year 1449. And throughout this time period, there was never, ever a year when there was not conflict between Eastern Rome and the Islamic Ottoman Empire. But they could not conquer the city of Constantinople. And, be, and while they could not conquer the city of Constantinople... It was impossible for them to destroy Eastern Roman Empire. But then some changes take place, and we need to move through these uh, very, very quickly. First of all, you have in 1449, you have the Roman Emperor, a man by the name of John Paleologus. It's my attempt at a Greek name. He's the Roman Emperor. He dies. His brother, Constantine the Thirteenth. There were a lot of... You all remember Con the Fruitier? Who remembers him? Yeah. That's showing my age, isn't it? Okay. There were a lot of Constantines, and there are still a lot of Constantines in Greece. But Constantine the 13th is next in line for the throne, and here's what happens. I want you to know this is very significant because you have a bloodless transfer of sovereignty. Because he refuses to take the throne without the permission of of the Ottoman sultan of the time. And the Ottoman sultan of the time was a man by the name of Amarath. He was a very mild man and man. He was very free and he's like, yes, sure, you go ahead and rule under my sovereignty. So the Bible says 150 years. Exactly 150 years later, there is a bloodless change of sovereignty. That's not the end of the story. It goes on. Revelation Speaks about a change, and we're going to move through this quickly. Verse 12, one woe is passed. Another one, another two more are coming quickly. Verse 13, a sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from where? The four horns of the golden altar. Notice that the context is still the holy place. So it's still pre-1844, pre the judgment. Saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates, and the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour, a day, a month, and a year to kill the third part of men. Notice the change that has taken place. Now, rather than tormenting, the empire is going to be killed. And the Bible tells you how it is going to happen. It says in verse 17, I saw the horses... 
And those that sat on them, having breastplates of fire or red or jacinth and blue and brimstone yellow, and the heads of the horses were the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone, and by fire and smoke and sulfur was the third part of men or the empire destroyed. What means does the Bible say would be used to destroy a third of the empire? Fire, smoke, and what? Sulfur. Okay, Kelvin, I know that you've had to have experimented with black powder at some time in your life. What is the primary ingredient of black powder? It's sulfur. Okay, now we're, now we're going to get a science lesson, but anyway. Okay, 10% sulfur. All right, mate. That's, yes. And that's the part that you smell when black powder burns. And when black powder burns, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, it creates a great cloud of black smoke. You ever see a cannon go off and there's just poof, this massive cloud of black smoke that comes out at the end of it. The Bible says the empire would be destroyed by that. There was a bloodless takeover between Constantine XIII and Amrath II, but then Muhammad II comes to power... And he was a very, very different kettle of fish. This guy had a massive ego. And he's like, no, I won't be satisfied while ever there is anybody sitting on the throne of Constantinople other than somebody, you know, an Ottoman, uh, a Turkish Islamic person. And so the, 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 the citizens of Constantinople did what they'd always done before. They'd closed their city gates. No one had ever been able to get in there before. But things had changed a little bit and technology was starting to catch up. And as the city was laid siege to, there was an insignificant peasant inside the city who the emperor offended. And so he defected out over the walls of the city and went to Muhammad II and said, I've come to fight in your army. And this insignificant peasant, so Muhammad II says, great, well, what can you do? What contribution can you make to my army? What is your trade? And he says, my trade is I am a founder of cannon, which simply means that he was someone who made cannons. This was new technology. Muhammad II said, great, can you build me a cannon big enough to bring down the walls of Constantinople? And they built the greatest guns that the world has ever seen. 14 hand breadths across the barrel. That's four foot bore. They would load them with rocks. It would take them like a week to load these things. And Muhammad II, being the kind of person he was, he used to like to fire them all at once. And in a very short space of time, the Roman Empire was gone. But the prophecy is not finished because we have a continuation of the time period. We have a period that is described as an hour, a day, a month, and a year, which comes to 391 years and 15 days that has been assigned to this next section of the empire. And that will bring you to the 11th of August, 1840. And I'm going to run through this very, very quickly because we are out of time. In the lead up to this event right here, People began to study their prophecies of the Bible. They were studying, obviously, about 1844 and other time prophecies. They studied this one, and they recognized that this one was going to end on the 11th of August, 1844, and they began to preach that the Ottoman Empire would lose its sovereignty on the 11th of August, 1840. And guess what happened on the 11th of August, 1840? 
the Ottoman Empire lost its sovereignty in exactly the same way as the Roman Empire, it was a bloodless takeover, had lost its sovereignty right there. And its sovereignty went to a coalition of four Christian nations in Europe. Russia, Prussia, England, and another one that I can't remember right now. Right on time. There was one evangelist who documented over 1,000 atheists who gave their life to God as a result of the fulfillment of this prophecy right here. And yet it's a few years ago now, isn't it? And most of us have forgotten this prophecy and how dramatically it was fulfilled in the past. And so there's some lessons that we can learn from this right here. First of all, when we look back to the events surrounding 1844, the beginning of the judgment and the beginning of the time of the end, we can see that there was a whole lot more going on in the world back then than just a small group of people somewhere in the New England states of America preaching about 1844. No, that was being preached right across the world. It was called the Great Second Advent Movement. It was the most global religious movement that the world ever saw. But not only big events were taking place to point out and say, yes, you are on the right track here. You know, God has given a, a prophecy, a time prophecy that is accurate to the day. Over a huge span of time that is fulfilled just before 1844. So God's like, yep, it's fulfilled right here. You guys are on the right track. But there's more to it than that. And I'd like to share with you a passage from Daniel chapter 2. Because the Bible makes a claim about God. A claim that I think we often don't take seriously. And in Daniel chapter 2, the Bible says, in verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those that know understanding. Why don't you notice here that the Bible makes the claim that it is God who removes kings. It is God who sets up kings. Isn't that so? Now look around our world right now. You know, we have, we have some rather large egos in our world right now. We have confusion in our own parliament but as to where people were come from, but that's another story. Um, but we have some rather large egos out there. You've got Trump out there. You've got Putin out there. You've got um, Kim, Kim Jong-un. You've got uh, um, Islamic State. And you've got some friction in the world. You've got some craziness in the world. You've got some chaos in the world. Isn't that so? And it would be very, very easy to look at all that and say, you know what? God isn't in control of this world. God isn't, you know, he's not interested. He's not, he's not in control of this world. There's, there's just chaos in our world. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says, no, God is in control. You can look at the rise of Islam that is taking place during this particular time period right here, and you could say, you know what? If you're just looking at the history of it without looking at the prophecy, that was just chaos. God isn't, God isn't, isn't in control here. You know, this is the 1040 window. This has created this whole big area of darkness in our world where where, where Christianity is just not making any inroads, where it's so hard to evangelize and to witness to people. What is it that is going on here? And God quietly back, sits back and says, okay, I'm not going to give you every single detail that's going to take place on the planet. I'm just going to give you a few samples. Here's a sample. Boom. 
You can look at Islam. You can look at ISIS. You can look at all of the terrible things that are taking place in the name of Islam right now. You can look at the history of what took place down through the years. And guess what? I am in control. I am sovereign ruler and creator of the universe. And nothing happens on planet Earth without my permission. You see, friends, we serve a God who is all-powerful. We serve a God who is interested in every single thing that takes place here on this planet. We serve a God in which we might think the world is chaos, but he's like, no, this is not chaos because I have a plan. We might not see the plan, but we can accept by faith that God does have a plan. And we can accept by faith that all things work together for good to those that serve God. And then we can take that same principle, we can see it on the macro scale here, spanning hundreds and hundreds of years. And we can apply it to our lives. Do you ever feel like your life is in chaos? I know I do. Yeah. I'm just like, where on earth is all this going? How is this going to work out? What is going to happen here? And yet we serve a God who is in control and has a plan. If God can control big events on this planet, do you think it's difficult or hard for God to control small events in your life? No, not at all. This is easy for God. We may not see the future, but as we look out at what Jesus has done for us in the past, how much he cares for us, the power that he exerts in our world, we can know and we can trust and we can be assured that God has a plan for our life. And if we surrender ourselves to him, that plan is going to be fulfilled to his glory and honor. You want that plan fulfilled in your life? I know that I do. I don't see how it's going to happen. I don't know the future, but I know that I can trust it to God. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit adventist-streaming.org. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.